Chapter 40 of The Deluge, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Deluge, Volume 2, by Henrik Sienkiewicz, translated by Jeremiah Curtin, 1835-1906. Chapter 40 July 1st, between Povonsky and the settlement afterward called Marymont, was celebrated a great field mass, which 10,000 men of the quarter soldiers heard with attentive mind. The king made a vow that in case of victory he would build a church to the Most Holy Lady. Dignitaries, the hetmans, the knights made vows, and even simple soldiers, following the example, each according to his means, for this was to be the day of the final storm. After the mass, each of the leaders moved to his own command. Sapieha took his position opposite the Church of the Holy Ghost, which at that time was outside the walls. But because it was the key to the walls, it was greatly strengthened by the Swedes, and occupied in fitting manner by the troops. Charnyetsky was to capture Danzig House, for the rear wall of that building formed a part of the city wall, and by passing through the building it was possible to reach the city. Piotr Opalinski, the voyevoda of Podlaski, with men from Great Poland and Mazovia, was to attack from the Krakow suburbs and the Vistula. The quarter regiments were to attack the gates of New City. There were so many men that they almost exceeded the approaches to the walls. The entire plain, all the neighbouring suburban villages and the meadows were overflowed with a sea of soldiers. Beyond the men were white tents, after the tents wagons far away. The eye was lost in the blue distance before it could reach the end of that swarm. Those legions were standing in perfect readiness, with weapons point forward and one foot in advance for the run. They were ready at any moment to rush to the breaches made by the guns of heavy calibre, and especially by Zamoyski's great guns. The guns did not cease to play for a moment. The storm was deferred only because they were waiting for the final answer of Wittenberg to the letter which the Grand Chancellor Koreczynski had sent him. When, about midday, the officer returned with a refusal, the ominous trumpets rang out around the city, and the storm began. The armies of the kingdom under the Hetmans, Charnyetsky's men, the regiments of the king, the infantry regiments of Zamoyski, the Lithuanians of Sapieha, and the legions of the general militia rushed toward the walls like a swollen river but from behind the walls bloomed out against them rolls of white smoke and darts of flame. Heavy cannon, arquebuses, double-barrelled guns, muskets thundered simultaneously. The earth was shaken in its foundations. The balls broke into that throng of men, ploughed long furrows in it, but the men ran on and tore up to the fortress, regarding neither fire nor death. Clouds of powder smoke hid the sun. Each attacked furiously what was nearest him. The Hetmans, the gates of New City. Charnyetsky, Danzig House. Sapieha with the Lithuanians, the Church of the Holy Ghost. 
the Mazovians and men of Great Poland, the Krakow suburbs. The heaviest work fell to the last mentioned men, for the palaces and houses along the Krakow suburbs were turned into fortresses. But that day such fury of battle had seized the Mazovians that nothing could stand before their onset. They took by storm house after house, palace after palace. They fought in windows, in doors, in passages. After the capture of one house, before the blood was dry on their hands and faces, they rushed to another. Again, a hand-to-hand -hand battle, and again they rushed farther. The private regiments vied with the general militia, and the general militia with the infantry. They had been commanded before advancing to the storm to carry at their breasts bundles of unripe grain to ward off the bullets, but in the ardour and frenzy of battle they hurled aside every defence and ran forward with bare bosoms. In the midst of a bloody struggle, the chapel of the Tsar Shusky and the lordly palace of the Konietz Polskys were captured. The Swedes were destroyed to the last man in the smaller buildings, in the stables of the magnates, in the gardens descending to the Vistula. Near the Kazanovsky palace, the Swedish infantry tried to make a stand in the street, and reinforced from the walls of the palace, from the church, and the bell tower of the Bernardines, which was turned into a strong fortress, they received the attack with a cutting fire. But the hail of bullets did not stop the attack for a moment, and the nobles, with the cry of Mazovians victorious, rushed with sabres into the centre of the quadrangle. After them came the land infantry, servants armed with poles, pickaxes and scythes. The quadrangle was broken in a twinkle, and hewing began. Swedes and Poles were so mingled together that they formed one gigantic mass, which squirmed, twisted, and rolled in its own blood between the Kazanovsky Palace, the House of Radzeyovsky, and the Krakow Gate. But new legions of warriors breathing blood came on continually, like a foaming river, from the direction of the Krakow Gate. The Swedish infantry was cut to pieces at last, and then began that famous storm of the Kazanovsky Palace and the Bernadines Church, which in great part decided the fate of the day. Zagwaba commanded, for he was mistaken the day before in thinking that the king called him to his person only to be present, for, on the contrary, he confided to him, as to a famous and experienced warrior, command over the camp servants who, with the quarter soldiers and the general militia, were to go as volunteers to storm from that side. Zagwaba was willing, it is true, to go with these men in the rear, and content himself with occupying the palaces already captured. But when, in the very beginning, all vying with one another were mingled completely, the human current bore him on with the others. So he went, for although he had from nature great circumspection as a gift, and preferred, where it was possible, not to expose his life to danger, he had for so many years become accustomed to battles in spite of himself, had been present in so many dreadful slaughters, that when the inevitable came, he fought with others, and even better than others, for he fought with desperation and rage in a manful heart. So at this time, he found himself at the gate of the Kazanovsky Palace, 
or rather in the hell which was raging dreadfully in front of that gate, that is, amid a whirlpool, heat, crushing, a storm of bullets, fire, smoke, groans and shouts of men. Thousands of scythes, picks and axes were driven against the gate. A thousand arms pressed and pushed it furiously. Some men fell as if struck by lightning. Others pushed themselves into their places, trampled their bodies and forced themselves forward as if seeking death on purpose. No one had seen or remembered a more stubborn defence, but also not a more resolute attack. From the highest stories, bullets were rained and pitch poured down on the gate. But those who were under fire, even had they wished, could not withdraw. So powerfully were they pressed from behind. You saw single men, wet from perspiration, black from smoke, with set teeth, with wild eyes, hurling at the gate beams of such size that at an ordinary time three strong men would not have been able to lift them. So their strength was trebled by frenzy. All the windows were stormed simultaneously. Ladders were placed at the upper stories. Lattices were hewn from the walls. But still from those lattices and windows, from openings cut in the walls, were sticking out musket barrels, which did not cease to smoke for a moment. But at last such smoke ascended, such dust rose, that on that bright sunny day the assailants could scarcely recognise one another. In spite of that, they did not desist from the struggle, but climbed ladders the more fiercely, attacked the gate more wildly, because the sounds from the church of the Bernardines announced that there other parties were storming with similar energy. Now Zagwaba cried with a voice so piercing that it was heard amid the uproar and shots, A box with powder under the gate! It was brought to him in a twinkle. He gave command at once to cut just beneath the bolt an opening of such size that the box alone would find place in it. When the box was fitted in, Zagwaba himself set fire to the sulphur thread, then commanded, Aside! Close to the wall! Those standing near rushed to both sides, toward those who had placed the ladders at the farther windows. A moment of expectation followed. A mighty report shook the air, and new bundles of smoke rose toward the sky. Zagwaba sprang forward with his men. They saw that the explosion had not rent the gate to small pieces, but had torn the hinges from the right side, wrested away a couple of strong beams, already partly cut, turned the handle and pulled off one half of the lower part so that a passage was open through which large men might enter easily. Sharpened stakes, axes and scythes began to beat violently on the weakened door. A hundred arms pushed it with utmost effort. A sharp crash was heard and all one half fell, uncovering the depth of the dark antechamber. In that darkness gleamed discharges of musketry, but the human river rushed forward with an irresistible torrent. The palace was captured. At the same time they broke in through the windows, and a terrible battle with cold weapons began in the interior of the palace. Chamber was taken after chamber, corridor after corridor, story after story. 
The walls had been so shattered and weakened beforehand that the ceiling in many rooms fell with a crash, covering with their ruins poles and swedes. But the Mazovians advanced like a conflagration. They penetrated every place, overturning with their long knives, cutting and thrusting. No man of the Swedes asked for quarter, but neither was it given. In some corridors and passages, the piles of bodies so blocked the way that the Swedes made barricades of them. The Poles pulled them out by the feet, by the hair, and hurled them through the windows. Blood flowed in streams through the passages. Groups of Swedes defended themselves yet here and there, and repelled with weakening hands the furious blows of the stormers. Blood had covered their faces, darkness was covering their eyes, more than one sank on his knees and still fought. Pressed on every side, suffocated by the throng of opponents, the Scandinavians died in silence, in accord with their fame as beseemed warriors. The statues of divinities and ancient heroes, bespattered with blood, looked with lifeless eyes on that death. Rokhkovalsky raged specially in the upper stories, but Zagwoba rushed with his men to the terraces, and when he had cut to pieces the infantry defending themselves there, he hurried from the terraces to those wonderful gardens which were famed throughout Europe. The trees were already cut down, the rare plants destroyed by Polish balls, the fountains broken, the earth ploughed up by bombshells. In a word, everywhere a desert and destruction, though the Swedes had not raised their robber hands against this place, out of regard for the person of Radziejowski. A savage struggle set in there too, but it lasted only a short time, for the Swedes gave but feeble resistance and were cut to pieces under the personal command of Zagwoba. The soldiers dispersed now through the garden, and the whole palace was plundered. Zagwoba betook himself to a corner of the garden, to a place where the walls formed a strong angle, and where the sun did not come, for the knight wished to rest somewhat, and he rubbed the sweat from his heated forehead. All at once he espied some strange monsters looking at him with hostility through an iron grating. The cage was fixed in a corner of the wall, so that balls falling from the outside could not reach it. The door of the cage was wide open, but those meagre and ugly creatures did not think of taking advantage of this. Evidently terrified by the uproar, the whistling of bullets, and the fierce slaughter at which they had looked a moment before, they crowded into a corner of the cage, and hidden in the straw gave note of their terror only by muttering. Are those monkeys or devils? said Zagwaba to himself. Suddenly anger seized him, courage swelled in his breast, and raising his sabre he fell upon the cage. A terrible panic was the answer to the first blow of his sabre. The monkeys, which the Swedish soldiers had treated kindly and fed from their own slender rations, fell into such a fright that madness simply seized them and since Zagwaba stopped their exit, they began to rush through the cage with unnatural springs, hanging to the sides, to the top, screaming and biting. At last, one in frenzy sprang on Zagwaba's shoulder, and seizing him by the head, fastened to it with all his power. 
Another hung to his right shoulder, a third caught him in front by the neck. The fourth hung to his long split sleeves which were tied together behind. And Zagwaba, stifled, sweating, struggled in vain, in vain struck blindly toward the rear. Breath soon failed him. His eyes were standing out of his head, and he began to cry with despairing voice, Gracious gentlemen, save me! The cry brought a number of men who, unable to understand what was happening, rushed to his aid with blood-streaming sabres, but they halted at once in astonishment. They looked at one another, and, as if under the influence of some spell, they burst out in one great laugh. More soldiers ran up, a crowd was formed, but laughter was communicated to all as an epidemic. They staggered as if drunk, they held their sides, their faces, besmeared with the gore of men, were twisting spasmodically, and the more Zagwaba struggled, the more did they laugh. Now Rokhovalsky ran down from an upper story, scattered the crowd, and freed his uncle from the simian embraces. You rascals, cried the panting Zagwaba, I would you were slain. You were laughing to see a Catholic in oppression from these African monsters. I would you were slain. Were it not for me, you would be butting your heads to this moment against the gate, for you deserve nothing better. I wish you were dead, because you are not worth these monkeys. I wish you were dead yourself, king of the monkeys, cried the man standing nearest. Simiarum destructor, destroyer of monkeys, cried another. Victor, cried the third. What victor? He is victus, conquered. Here Rokhovalsky came again to the aid of his uncle, and struck the nearest man in the breast with his fist. The man dropped to the earth that instant with blood coming from his mouth. Others retreated before the anger of Kowalski, some drew their sabres, but further disputes were interrupted by the uproar and shots coming from the Bernardines' church. Evidently, the storm continued there yet in full force, and judging from the feverish musketry fire, the Swedes were not thinking of surrender. With succour! To the church! To the church! cried Zagwaba. He sprang himself to the top of the palace. There, from the right wing, was to be seen the church, which seemed to be in flames. Crowds of stormers were circling around it convulsively, not being able to enter, and perishing for nothing in a crossfire, for bullets were rained on them from the crack of gate as thickly as sand. Cannon to the windows, shouted Zagwaba. There were guns enough, large and small, in the Kazanovsky palace, therefore they were drawn to the windows. From fragments of costly furniture and pedestals of statues, platforms were constructed, and in the course of half an hour, a number of guns were looking, out through the empty openings of the windows toward the church. Roch, said Zagwaba, with uncommon irritation, I must do something considerable, or my glory is lost through those monkeys. Would that the plague had stifled them. The whole army will ridicule me, and though there is no lack of words in my mouth, still I cannot meet the whole world. I must wipe away this confusion, or wide as this commonwealth is, they will herald me through it as king of the monkeys. Uncle must wipe away this confusion, repeated Roch with a thundering voice. 
and the first means will be that, as I have captured the Kazanovsky palace, for let anyone say that it was not I who did it, let anyone say that it was not uncle who did it, repeated Roch. I will capture that church, so help me the Lord God, amen, concluded Zagwaba. Then he turned to his attendants who were there at the guns. Fire! Fear seized the Swedes, who were defending themselves with despair in the church, when the whole side wall began on a sudden to tremble. Bricks, rubbish, lime fell on those who were sitting in the windows, at the portholes, on the fragments of the inside cornices, at the pigeonholes, through which they were firing at the besiegers. A terrible dust rose in the house of God, and mixed with the smoke began to stifle the wearied men. One man could not see another in the darkness. Cries of, I am suffocating, I am suffocating, still increased the terror. The noise of balls falling through the windows, of leaden lattice falling to the floor, the heat, the exhalations from bodies, turned the retreat of God into a hell upon earth. The frightened soldiers stood aside from entrances, windows and portholes. The panic is changed into frenzy. Again, terrified voices call, I am suffocating, air, water. Hundreds of voices begin to roar, A white flag, a white flag. Erskine, who is commanding, seizes the flag with his own hand to display it outside. At that moment the entrance bursts. A line of stormers rush in like an avalanche of Satan's and a slaughter follows. There is sudden silence in the church. There is heard only the beast-like panting of the strugglers, the bite of steel on bones, and on the stone floor groans, the patter of blood. And at times some voice in which there is nothing human cries, Quarter! Quarter! After an hour's fighting, the bell on the tower begins to thunder, and thunders, thunders, to the victory of the Mazovians, to the funeral of the Swedes. The Kazanovsky Palace, the Cloister, and the Bell Tower are captured. Pyotr Opalinsky himself, the voivode of Podlaski, appeared in the blood-stained throng before the palace on his horse. Who came to our aid from the palace? cried he wishing to outcry the sound and the roar of the men. He who captured the palace, said a powerful man, appearing before the voivoda. I. What is your name? Zagwoba. Vivat Zagwoba, bellowed thousands of throats. But the terrible Zagwoba pointed with his stained sabre toward the gate. We have not done enough yet. Turn the cannon toward the wall and against the gate. Advance! Follow me! The mad throng rush in the direction of the gate. Meanwhile, oh wonder, the fire of the Swedes, instead of increasing, is growing weak. At the same moment, some voice unexpected and piercing cries from the top of the bell tower, Charnetsky is in the city. I see our squadrons! The Swedish fire was weakening more and more. Halt! Halt! commanded the voivoda. 
but the throng did not hear him and rushed at random. That moment a white flag appeared on the Krakow gate. In truth, Charnyetsky, having forced his way through Danzig House, rushed like a hurricane into the precincts of the fortress. When the Danilovich Palace was taken, and when a moment later the Lithuanian colours glittered on the walls near the Church of the Holy Ghost, Wittenberg saw that further resistance was vain. The Swedes might defend themselves yet in the lofty houses of old and new city, but the inhabitants had already taken arms, and the defence would end in a terrible slaughter of the Swedes without hope of victory. The trumpeters began then to sound on the walls and to wave white flags. Seeing this, the Polish commanders withheld the storm. General Lohenhaupt, attended by a number of colonels, went out through the gate of New City and rushed with all breath to the king. Jan Kazimir had the city in his hands now, but the kind king wished to stop the flow of Christian blood, therefore he settled on the conditions offered to Wittenberg at first. The city was to be surrendered with all the booty collected in it. Each Swede was permitted to take with him only what he had brought from Sweden. The garrison with all the generals and with arms in hand were to march out of the city, taking their sick and wounded and the Swedish ladies, of whom a number of tens were in Warsaw. To the Poles who were serving with the Swedes, amnesty was given, with the idea that surely none were serving of their own will. Bogusov Radzivil alone was accepted. To this, Wittenberg agreed the more readily, since the prince was at that moment with Douglas on the book. The conditions were signed at once. All the bells in the churches announced to the city and the world that the capital had passed again into the hands of its rightful monarch. An hour later, a multitude of the poorest people came out from behind the walls, seeking charity and bread in the Polish camp, for all in the city except the Swedes were in want of food. The king commanded to give what was possible, and went himself to look at the departure of the Swedish garrison. He was surrounded by church and lay dignitaries, by a suite so splendid that it dazzled the people. Nearly all the troops, that is, the troops of the kingdom under the Hetmans, Charnetsky's division, the Lithuanians under Sapieha, and an immense crowd of general militia, together with the camp's servants, assembled around his majesty. For all were curious to see those Swedes with whom a few hours before they had fought so terribly and bloodily. Polish commissioners were posted at all the gates from the moment of signing the conditions. These commissioners were entrusted with the duty of seeing that the Swedes bore off no booty. A special commission was occupied with receiving the booty in the city itself. In the van came the cavalry, which was not numerous, especially since Boguswav's men were excluded from the right of departure. Next came the field artillery with light guns. The heavy pieces were given to the Poles. The men marched at the sides of the guns with lighted matches. Before them waved their unfurled flags, which, as a mark of honour, were lowered before the Polish king, recently a wanderer. The artillerists marched 
proudly, looking straight into the eyes of the Polish knights, as if they wished to say, we shall meet again. And the Poles wondered at their haughty bearing and courage unbent by misfortune. Then appeared the wagons with officers and wounded. In the first one lay Benedict Oxenstiern, the Chancellor, before whom Jan Kazimir had commanded the infantry to present arms, wishing to show that he knew how to respect virtue even in an enemy. Then, to the sound of drums and with waving flags, marched the quadrangle of unrivalled Swedish infantry, resembling, according to the expression of Subagazi, moving castles. After them advanced a brilliant party of cavalry, armoured from foot to head, and with a blue banner on which a golden lion was embroidered. These surrounded the chief of staff. At sight of them, a murmur passed through the crowd. Wittenberg is coming. Wittenberg is coming. In fact, the field marshal himself was approaching, and with him, the younger Wrangel, Horn, Erskine, Lohenhaupt, Forgel. The eyes of the Polish knights were turned with eagerness toward them, and especially toward the face of Wittenberg. But his face did not indicate such a terrible warrior as he was in reality. It was an aged face, pale, emaciated by disease. He had sharp features, and above his mouth a thin, small moustache turned up at the ends. The pressed lips and long, pointed nose gave him the appearance of an old and grasping miser. Dressed in black velvet and with a black hat on his head, he looked more like a learned astrologer or a physician, and only the gold chain on his neck, the diamond star on his breast, and a field marshal's baton in his hand showed his high office of leader. Advancing, he cast his eyes unquietly on the king, on the king's staff, on the squadron standing in rank. Then his eyes took in the immense throngs of the general militia, and an ironical smile came out on his pale lips. But in those throngs a murmur was rising ever greater, and the word Wittenberg, Wittenberg, was in every mouth. After a while, the murmur changed into deep grumbling, but threatening, like the grumbling of the sea before a storm. From instant to instant it was silent, and then, far away in the distance, in the last ranks, was heard some voice in peroration. This voice was answered by others. Greater numbers answered them. They were heard ever louder and spread more widely, like ominous echoes. You would swear that a storm was coming from a distance, and that it would burst with all power. The officers were anxious and began to look at the king with disquiet. What is that? What does that mean? asked Jan Kazimir. Then the grumbling passed into a roar as terrible as if thunders had begun to wrestle with one another in the sky. The immense throng of general militia moved violently, precisely like standing grain when a hurricane is sweeping around it with giant wing. All at once, some tens of thousands of sabres were glittering in the sun. What is that? What does that mean? asked the king repeatedly. 
No one could answer him. Then Vorodyovsky, standing near Sapieha, exclaimed, That is Pan Zagwoba. Vorodyovsky had guessed aright. The moment the conditions of surrender were published and had come to the ears of Zagwoba, the old noble fell into such a terrible rage that speech was taken from him for a while. When he came to himself, his first act was to spring among the ranks of the general militia and fire up the minds of the nobles. They heard him willingly, for it seemed to all that for so much bravery, for such toil, for so much bloodshed under the walls of Warsaw, they ought to have a better vengeance against the enemy. Therefore great circles of chaotic and stormy men surrounded Zagwoba, who threw live coals by the handful on the powder, and with his speech fanned into greater proportions the fire which all the more easily seized their heads, that they were already smoking from the usual libations consequent on victory. Gracious gentlemen, said he, behold these old hands have toiled fifty years for the country. Fifty years have they been shedding the blood of the enemy at every wall of the Commonwealth, and today I have witnesses. They captured the Kazanovsky Palace and the Bernadine's Church. And when, gracious gentlemen, did the Swedes lose heart? When did they agree to capitulate? It was when we turned our guns from the Bernadines to the old city. We have not spared our blood, brothers. It has been shed bountifully, and no one has been spared but the enemy. But we, brothers, have left our lands without masters, our servants without lords, our wives without husbands, our children without fathers. Oh, my dear children, what is happening to you now? And we have come here with our naked breasts against cannon. And what is our reward for so doing? This is it. Wittenberg goes forth free, and besides, they give him honour for the road. The executioner of our country departs, the blasphemer of religion departs, the raging enemy of the most holy lady, the burner of our houses, the thief of our last bit of clothing, the murderer of our wives and children. Oh, my children, where are you now? The disgracer of the clergy and virgins consecrated to God. Woe to thee, country! Shame to you, nobles! A new agony is awaiting you. O oh, our holy faith! Woe to you, suffering churches! Weeping to thee and complaint, O Chensterhover! For Wittenberg is departing in freedom, and will return soon to press out tears and blood, to finish killing those whom he has not yet killed, to burn that which he has not yet burned, to put shame on that which he has not yet put to shame. Weep, O Poland and Lithuania, weep, ranks of people, as I weep, an old soldier who, descending to the grave, must look on your agony. Woe to thee, Ilion, the city of aged Priam, woe, woe, woe. So spoke Zagwoba, and thousands listened to him, and wrath raised the hair on the heads of the nobles, but he moved on farther. Again he complained, tore his clothing, and laid bare his breast. He entered also into the army, which gave a willing ear to his complaints, for in truth there was a terrible animosity in all hearts against Wittenberg. The tumult would have burst out at once, 
but Zagrobe himself restrained it, lest, if it burst too early, Wittenberg might save himself somehow. But if it broke out when he was leaving the city, and would show himself to the general militia, they would bear him apart on their sabres before any one could see what was done. And his reckoning was justified. At sight of the tyrant, frenzy seized the brains of the chaotic and half-drunken nobles, and a terrible storm burst forth in the twinkle of an eye. Forty thousand sabres were flashing in the sun. Forty thousand throats began to bellow. Death to Wittenberg! Give him here! Make mincemeat of him! Make mincemeat of him! To the throngs of nobles were joined throngs more chaotic still, and made brutal by the recent shedding of blood, the camp servants. Even the more disciplined regular squadrons began to murmur fiercely against the oppressor, and the storm began to fly with rage against the Swedish staff. At the first moment, all lost their heads, though all understood what the matter was. "'What is to be done?' cried voices near the king. "'Oh, merciful Jesus! Rescue! Defend! It is a shame not to observe the conditions!' Enraged crowds rush in among the squadrons, press upon them. The squadrons are confused, cannot keep their places. Around them are sabres, sabres, and sabres. Under the sabres are inflamed faces, threatening eyes, howling mouths, uproar, noise. Wild cries grow with amazing rapidity. In front are rushing camp servants, camp followers, and every kind of army rabble, more like beasts or devils than men. Wittenberg understood what was happening. His face grew pale as a sheet. Sweat, abundant and cold, covered his forehead in a moment, and, oh wonder, that field marshal who hitherto was ready to threaten the whole world, that conqueror of so many armies, that captor of so many cities, that old soldier was then so terribly frightened at the howling mass that presence of mind left him utterly. He trembled in his whole body, he dropped his hands and groaned, spittle began to flow from his mouth to the golden chain, and the field marshal's baton dropped from his hand. Meanwhile, the terrible throng was coming nearer and nearer, Ghastly forms were surrounding already the hapless generals. A moment more, they would bear them apart on sabres, so that not a fragment of them would remain. Other Swedish generals drew their sabres, wishing to die weapon in hand, as beseemed knights. But the aged oppressor grew weak altogether, and half-closed his eyes. At this moment, Vovodyovsky, with his men, sprang to the rescue of the staff. Going wedge form on a gallop, he split the mob as a ship moving with all sails bears apart the towering waves of the sea. The cry of the trampled rabble was mingled with the shouts of the louder squadron, but the horsemen reached the staff first, and surrounded it in the twinkle of an eye with a wall of horses, a wall of their own breasts and sabres. To the king, cried the little knight. They moved on. The throng surrounded them from every side, ran along the flanks and the rear, brandished sabres and clubs, howled more and more terribly, but the louder men pushed forward, 
thrusting out their sabres from moment to moment at the sides as a strong stag thrusts with his antlers when surrounded by wolves. Then Wojniewowicz sprang to the aid of Wodyowski. After him, Wilczkowski with a regiment of the king. Then Prince Powobinski, and all together, defending themselves unceasingly, conducted the staff to the presence of Jan Kazimir. The tumult increased instead of diminishing. It seemed after a time that the excited rabble would try to seize the Swedish generals without regard to the king. Wittenberg recovered, but fear did not leave him in the least. He sprang from his horse then, and as a hare pressed by dogs or wolves takes refuge under a wagon in motion, so did he, in spite of his gout, throw himself at the feet of Jan Kazimir. Then he dropped on his knees, and seizing the king's stirrup, began to cry, Save me, gracious lord, save me! I have your royal word, the agreement is signed. Save me, save me! Have mercy on us, do not let them murder me! The king, at sight of such abasement and such shame, turned away his eyes with aversion and said, Field Marshal, pray be calm. But he had a troubled face himself, for he knew not what to do. Around them were gathering crowds ever greater, and approaching with more persistence. It is true that the squadron stood as if for battle, and Zamoyski's infantry had formed a terrible quadrangle round about, but what was to be the end of it all? The king looked at Charnetsky, but Charnetsky only twisted his beard with rage. His soul was storming with such anger against the disobedience of the general militia. Then the chancellor, Koroczynski, said, Gracious Lord, we must keep the agreement. We must, replied the king. Wittenberg, who was looking carefully into their eyes, breathed more freely. Gracious Lord, said he, I believe in your words as in God. To which Pototsky, the old hetman of the kingdom, cried, And why have you broken so many oaths, so many agreements, so many terms of surrender? With what any man wars, from that will he perish. Why did you seize, in spite of the terms of capitulation, the king's regiment commanded by Wolf? Miller did that, not I, answered Wittenberg. The hetman looked at him with disdain, then turned to the king. Gracious Lord, I do not say this to incite your royal grace to break agreements also, for let perfidy be on their side alone. What is to be done? asked the king. If we send them to Prussia, fifty thousand nobles will follow and cut them to pieces before they reach Pultusk, unless we give them the whole regular army as a guard, and we cannot do that. Hear, your royal grace, how the militia are howling. In truth, there is a well-founded animosity against Wittenberg. It is needful first to safeguard his person, and then to send all away when the fire has cooled down. There is no other way, said Koroczynski. But where are they to be kept? We cannot keep them here, for here, devil take it, civil war would break out, said the voivode of Rus. Now Sobiepan Zamoyski appeared, and pouting his lips greatly, said with his customary spirit, Well, gracious lord, give them to me at Zamosht. Let them sit there till calm comes. 
I will defend Wittenberg there from the nobles. Let them try to get him from me. But on the road will your worthiness defend the field marshal? asked the chancellor. I can depend on my servants yet, or have I not infantry and cannon? Let any one take him from Zamoyski. We shall see. Here he put his hands on his hips, struck his thighs, and bent from one side of the saddle to the other. There is no other way, said the Chancellor. I see no other, added Lance Koronsky. Then take them, said the King to Zamoyski. But Wittenberg, seeing that his life was threatened no longer, considered it proper to protest. We did not expect this, said he. Well, we do not detain you. The road is open, said Pototsky, pointing to the distance with his hand. Wittenberg was silent. Meanwhile, the Chancellor sent a number of officers to declare to the nobles that Wittenberg would not depart in freedom, but would be sent to Zamosht. The tumult, it is true, was not allayed at once. Still, the news had a soothing effect. Before night fell, attention was turned in another direction. The troops began to enter the city, and the sight of the recovered capital filled all minds with the delight of triumph. The king rejoiced. Still, the thought that he was unable to observe the conditions of the agreement troubled him not a little, as well as the endless disobedience of the general militia. Charnyetsky was chewing his anger. With such troops one can never be sure of tomorrow, said he to the king. Sometimes they fight badly, sometimes heroically, all from impulse, and at any outbreak rebellion is ready. God grant them not to disperse, said the king, for they are needed yet, and they think that they have finished everything. The man who caused that outbreak should be torn asunder with horses without regard to the services which he has rendered, continued Charnyetsky. The strictest orders were given to search for Zagwoba, for it was a secret to no man that he had raised the storm. But Zagwoba had, as it were, dropped into water. They searched for him in the tents, in the tabor, even among the Tartars, all in vain. Tizenhaus even said that the king, always kind and gracious, wished from his whole soul that they might not find him, and even undertook a nine days devotion to that effect. But a week later, after some dinner, when the heart of the monarch was big with joy, the following words were heard from the mouth of Jan Kazimir. Announced that Pan Zagwoba is not to hide himself longer, for we are longing for his jests. When Charnyetsky was horrified at this, the king said, Whoso in this commonwealth should have justice without mercy in his heart would be forced to carry an axe in his bosom and not a heart. Faults come easier here than anywhere, but in no land does repentance follow so quickly. Saying this, the king had Babinich more in mind than Zagwoba, and he was thinking of Babinich because the young man had bowed down to the king's feet the day before with a petition that he would not hinder him from going to Lithuania. He said that he wished to freshen the war there and attack the Swedes as he had once attacked Hovansky. And as the king intended to send there a soldier experienced in partisan warfare, he permitted Babinich to go, gave him the means, blessed him, and whispered some wish in his ear, 
after which the young knight fell his whole length at his feet. Then, without loitering, Kmichitz moved briskly toward the east. Subagazi, captured by a considerable present, permitted him to take five hundred fresh Dobruja Tartars. Fifteen hundred other good men marched with him, a force with which it was possible to begin something. And the young man's head was fired with the desire for battle and warlike achievements. The hope of glory smiled on him. He heard already how all Lithuania was repeating his name with pride and wonder. He heard especially how one beloved mouth repeated it, and his soul gave him wings. And there was another reason why he rode forward so briskly. Wherever he appeared, he was the first to announce the glad tidings. The Swede is defeated and Warsaw is taken. Wherever his horse's hoofs sounded, the whole neighbourhood rang with these words. The people along the roads greeted him with weeping. They rang bells in the church towers and sang Te Deum Laudamus. When he rode through the forest, the dark pines, when through the fields the golden grain, rocked by the wind, seemed to repeat and sound joyously, The Swede is defeated! Warsaw is taken! Warsaw is taken! End of chapter 40 Recording by David Granville Young